Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. This is a song in which we're crying for the revival of the Lord's people and of his church. And we're going to focus our attention this evening, take as our text, verse 18. Psalm 80, second to last verse, verse 18. So, we, so will not we go back from thee. Quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. And then it goes on, turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. So this evening we come to the third and final uh, sermon in a brief series of sermons on this biblical principle of, of backsliding, that, that soul sickness, if you will, which results in decay and a sense of distance, languishing, you know, the cold winter time blowing over the soul, deadness of, of our hearts. We began two weeks ago by, first of all, considering how we recognize spiritual backsliding. How do we identify it? How do, what does it look like? And we looked at the various symptoms. We distinguished those from misdiagnoses. We looked at the various steps that lead down this slope, what, how it unfolds, what it looks like, the source from which it springs, and so on. Then, then last week, we looked at recovery from spiritual backsliding and all that that entails. This evening, you know, we come thirdly to resisting spiritual backsliding, resisting spiritual backsliding. We had looked last week at the road to recovery, these, these four steps that bring us to a sense of, of recovery. Remember, we're to, first of all, remember, we're to repent. Uh, we're also to be returning, which is the essence. And then fourthly, we are to be renewing, renewing our love uh, to the Lord. And so having looked at the cause and cure and so on, we go on to this theme of resisting. What, does, what, are the, what are the ways in which God gives us instruction on how to prevent backsliding? How is it that we keep ourselves from this? And we recognize, of course, that much of what we heard about the, the recovery applies, likewise, to the prevention. But there are other things as well, and we need to break open some of those other things to, to consider them. So we're here in Psalm 80, which I said is a, a psalm in which we're crying out to the Lord to revive his church. He's coming as the great shepherd, and uh, the church and his people are described as a vineyard and as a vine, and, and the, the hedges have been broken down, the boars have come in, things have been turned up, there's upheaval, uh, the place has been burned, it's barren, it's fruitful, and so on. And so there's this cry that's going up, that the Lord would look down with love upon his vine, that he would visit it, that he would be pleased to come and, uh, and to make it strong for, for himself, that he would remember, and this is a reference in verse 17 to his own son, that his hand would be upon the man of his right hand, and so on. And at the end of the psalm, we have, of course, we have this recurring um, refrain, which is three times, the last time in verse 19, turn us again, Lord God of hosts. So it's this whole picture of being recovered by the Lord. Cause thy face to shine upon us. 
But at the end of the psalm, there's this commitment, right? Lord, grant us all of this. Recover us from our backsliding. Restore and strengthen us. And here's the commitment. So will not we go back from thee. Quicken us, you know, revive us, enliven us, bring, bring us to life, and we will call upon thy name. And so the Lord is giving to us a picture, and we saw this in Hosea 14, where we take with us words, we repent, we turn to the Lord, and then the Lord comes and he says, I will heal your backslidings, I will love you freely, and then he goes on to say, I will be like the dew upon you, right? I'm going to come and, and revive you. You're going to, as a consequence, you're going to grow like the lilies. You're going to put roots down. You're going to stretch out your, your branches. You're going to have beauty. The smell is going to be fragrant. You're going to be revived as the corn and so on and so forth. The Lord's saying, this is all the things I'll do for you. And the response in, in Hosea 14, at the end of all of that, is that Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? In response to all that the Lord says, I will be and I will do. I'll heal your backslidings. I'll love you freely. I'll be like dew. I'll cause you to grow up and flourish and so on and so forth. We say, what do I have any more to do with idols? Our fruit is found in the Lord. So it's similar. And we get these same pictures across the scriptures where these themes are touched on. This picture of vitality, of vibrance, of health, of fruitfulness uh, to the Lord's glory. And we recognize that it is a mercy. It's a mercy for the Lord to recover his people from backsliding individually and, and corporately. That is a mercy. But we also recognize it's an even greater mercy, if you will, that he is willing and able to keep us from backsliding, to preserve us from it, from the perils of it. In that sense, an ounce of prevention really is worth more than a pound of cure. The Lord's given to us, and we, we know those who have gone down that, that rocky slope and have gone through the beating and bruising that comes with backsliding, we can say a hearty amen to the fact that it is a mercy that the Lord is pleased to keep us from it, that that is precious to us that there is hope for, for the Lord's people, for hope for a sustained and happy and fruitful marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is able and he is, he is willing. So our hearts are drawn out, really, by the prospects of, of all of this. You think of you know, some of you getting into your later years I mean, you'll, you'll come to places like 1 Corinthians 4 at the end there, where it says the outward man is perishing, and yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And you say to yourself, well, it's true, right? It's, we, we can feel it. The outward man is perishing, right? The body is breaking down. There, is, there are things that are, that are going wrong and so on and so forth. And there's something within the believer says, oh, but that the inward man would indeed be renewed day by day, that our soul would be flourishing and thriving after the image of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, that's what's pictured, isn't it? At the end of Psalm 72, or excuse me, the end of Psalm 92. In verse 12, the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. 
They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. And I think, you know, we think the, the, those who are younger think, well, we have all these struggles, but oh, to be older and to have experience and history and, and some of the maturity that comes with that. But the fact is, young people, elderly Christians who have walked by faith all their days in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are nearing eternity, they desire and long for the day. And the Lord will heal all their backslidings. The accumulated numbers of backslidings. That the Lord would revive and recover all of the, the, the from all of the de decays and declensions would that they've been liable to, that they would be recovered from all of this and that they would flourish in holiness and in fruitfulness to the increase of their peace and their joy in, in believing. These are the things that, that, that older saints long for as much as younger saints. Well, what are these measures then? What are the, what are the ways in which we resist backsliding? How are we kept from it? What are the ways... By what means does this happen? What does the Lord call us to? And what does he provide us with help in? We're going to note three things this evening. The first, and this is really a bridge from what we've heard before, but the first thing is humility. The first thing is humility. It was Watson, a Puritan Watson, who said, the right manner of growing is to grow less in one's own eyes. The right manner of growing is to grow less in one's own eyes. And this is everywhere in the Bible. We saw it on Sabbath afternoon, this theme of pride and the Lord setting out to destroy pride, seeing that pride comes before a fall. We saw that, that pride was one of the root causes, the sources for, for spiritual backsliding in, in, in a previous sermon, the first sermon. Well, it should be so, no surprise to us then that humility, its opposite, would be one of the chief preservations from backsliding as, as a consequence. The grace of humility, which grows upward rather than casting us downward. Remember that, that uh, clarion call uh, let, where, where we're told, he who thinks he stands is to take heed is to be watchful lest he fall, right? Lest he decline, lest he slide backward. We're not spiritually strong when we feel like all is well, when we feel like we're invincible. That's when we're most weak. That's when we're most vulnerable. We're strong when we feel absolutely and acutely dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ for absolutely everything. And you, you'll remember, I've quoted this before, but I'll, I'll do it again. In the Westminster Confession, one of the more pastoral sections in this summary of biblical doctrine, not just pastoral, experimental, is uh, Confession chapter 5, paragraph 5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations, and the corruptions of their own hearts 
to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for sundry other just and holy reasons. And so we, we need to keep ourselves low before the Lord. And that, that includes, that that's only going to happen when there's a, a sensitivity in our conscience to sin. Right? When, when there's a sensitivity in our conscience to sin, this, this keeps us low and therefore dependent. We can become rather numb in all sorts of other things in life. We can become accustomed to stresses at work or to physical pain. And we can become relatively numb to some of these things. But we must stay fresh. You know, we must be tender to what God defines as sin. And there are all sorts of means that the Lord gives to us in his word and in his ordinances that help warm our heart to the Lord and increase our tenderness. But what is needed more than anything else is stretching ourselves to higher and higher views of the glory of God. Remember, we saw in the Lord's day that people, when they, they miscalculate and have a false definition of the nature of sin, they end up having an inaccurate view of the consequences of sin, the price for sin. We need, we need to stretch to higher and higher views of God. Go to our Bibles. We mine all that the Bible gives to us. We pray that the Lord would open it up, break it open to us, and show us more and more of, of himself. And the more we see of his glory and of his majesty and of his irresistible beauty, the lower we will be in our view of ourselves. These two things are, there's a direct corollary between the two. The higher the thoughts of God, the lower the view of self. The higher the thoughts of self, the lower the views of God. And this higher and more biblical view of, of the glory of God produces in us a greater hatred for sin and a greater love and delight in Jesus Christ. Right, here's a quote from Owen. I'm going to give you a few of these this evening. Faith will fix our souls on Christ who will fill us with delight and satisfaction. This in heaven is perfect blessedness, for it is caused by the eternal vision of the glory of God in Christ. He goes on, the reason why the spiritual life in our soul decays and withers is because we fill our minds with other things, and these things weaken the power of grace. And so he's saying we're to be living, looking, looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ, casting our eyes upward, focusing on the ever-expanding glory of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without that, our souls will wither. And without it, we'll never thrive in terms of gospel humility. But th this humility also has other far-reaching consequences. This humility teaches us to fear. It teaches us godly fear. The fear of, of the Lord. Happy is the man that fears always. The fear of God, which you've heard so many times, is the soul of godliness. In fact, uh, J. James said that the uh, something along the lines that the the cause 
or the way of, of backsliding, the way to um, prevent backsliding is to be afraid of it. Right? It's a passing comment, but it's a, it's a true one. It's to be afraid of it. You know, we, we see this. This is how the Lord deals with us. You, you know, someone is struggling with uh, lustful sensuality. And we, among many other things, turn to Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. And we, we, you open it up and you, you show. What is this telling us? What, 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 is, what is the theme really in addressing uh, that sort of immoral behavior and inclination? Well, what you find in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 is that it draws our minds, it draws our hearts, it draws our thoughts to the end of where all this leads. What is the end? Right? And so there's graphic language there. In those, in, those, in those passages, right? It's the road down to hell. It speaks about destroying your soul. It speaks about bringing you into bondage, reducing you to poverty, and so on and so forth. And you can appreciate what's happening here. It's creating within the heart a sense of apprehension and a fear because what happens is the devil comes and he wants you to see the beginning and that's it. He just wants you to focus on the beginning, the allurements, the enticements, the gratification, the pleasure, and so on and so forth. He doesn't want you to look anywhere beyond that. You just look at that. Keep your eyes glued on that. The Lord comes to us in his word. He blows through that, and he draws our attention and says, no, focus on this only. Focus on the end. See through it to where it leads, where it, where it goes. Right? And it creates a sense of godly fear with regards to it. So humility breeds this, this fear of, of backsliding. You don't think, well, I'm just lazy and I have excuses why I'm going to leave off earnest exercise of my soul and, you know, for today or this week or whatever else. No, you look where it leads. You look, first of all, in the pages of Scripture, here's where, here's where that goes. Here's where, here's where that ultimately culminates, and if, if you want the answer, the answer is apostasy and the inability to ever return, right? Ultimately, that's where it would lead if left unchecked. It leads to the pit of hell. But the Bible also gives us other pictures of where it leads and what it does. But you, the believer doesn't, I mean, the believer has all of that, but they can also look at their own experience and recall seasons of backsliding, the sorrow the brokenness, the desperation, the difficulty, the anguish, being robbed of joy and no delight in the exercise of faith, miserable, miserable even in lawful pleasures. All that stuff can come back. This is where that train takes us. Humility breeds this sort of thing. There's a, um, uh, a description in the the biography, and I brought this with me this evening, giving you more than I normally do on this score, but it's helpful. The biography of John Duncan, Rabbi Duncan, written by his pastor, Alexander Moody Stewart, who was phenomenal, bright light leader, free church minister in his, in his own right. But he's writing a biography of Duncan. And um, he, he's telling us something about him. And listen to what he says. Because I'm speaking about fear here, right? The, the, how humility breeds fear. 
Speaking of Duncan, Moody Stewart says, he, it says, um, it speaks of one of his leading and lifelong jealousies, his fear of a shallow religion. He feared this first and most for himself, and then he feared it for the religious community with a singularly sensitive apprehension. The gentle conviction of sin, the calm, coldish admiration of Christ, the gentlemanly, scholar-like, prudent gratitude, the obedience of a freezing but not absolutely frozen state, he detected in others as well as dreaded in himself. And there was nothing into which he more earnestly entered than any preaching or line of procedure that would help to break up such a condition of the Christian church. At all costs, he would have it broken up in himself. And he did not care what offense of the cross might arise, what foolishness of preaching, what contempt of the worldly, of the worldly world, or what displeasure of the religious world might ensue. If there might by any means be a shaking of this stagnation in the Christian community, right? This fear of what Moody Stewart's saying is shallow, shallow religion, this, this um, cold and scholar-like apprehension of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, no, we need meditation on the future life. We need to meditate on the brevity of time. We, we cannot be so arrogant as to think that we have endless amounts of this invaluable resource that we call time. Our time is short. And, and there's going to be quadrillions of years in heaven for the Lord's people in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be so idiotic as to think that you can spend this life in a dry, detached, formal religion, and to be content with merely the cerebral, intellectual acquaintance with Christ. No, we need genuine humility, the sight of Christ, the fear of, of these things. We need, you know, godly friends. Those who walk with the wise will be wise. Companion of fools has led to destruction. Those who, who share the heartthrob we need, we need to ourselves be the kind of person that can be of any benefit, a spiritual benefit to others, to study them, how to stir them up to love and good works. All of this connected to humility. But then secondly, we've got watchfulness. Secondly, there's watchfulness. So we will not go back from thee. There's a watchfulness, quicken us. We will call upon thy name. It's the same thing, Hosea 14, Revelation 2, Revelation 3, right? When he tells them to repent, he says, be watchful. He actually uses the word, be watchful, be alert, be attentive, be on guard, be vigilant, stay, you know, sit up and pay attention. Don't be drowsy. Don't be lax, lax. You think, you know, an illustration would be driving a car. You're driving a car down an interstate. I don't know what vehicles, the typical vehicle weighs. What is it, 2,000 pounds, 3,000 pounds, something like that. You're driving 70 plus miles an hour down the road. Other vehicles around you weighing way more. You know, tractor trailer trucks driving the same speed or faster, perhaps. You have a long trip. You're driving several states away and so on. You recognize, I have to be alert. I have to be watchful. I got to pay attention. What's coming up behind me? What's happening ahead of me? What's, what are people around me doing? 
right? You may glance quickly at the baby, but you're going to glance right back immediately. You recognize you got to keep your, your eyes on the road. You're not going to turn around and hold a conversation with somebody in the back seat looking at them. You know that if you don't stay watchful and alert to what's going on around you, you and everybody else in that vehicle are going to die. And so it's serious business. You exercise watchfulness. This is the Christian life. This is the most serious business in the entire world. This is the very most serious business. It's not peripheral. And so it requires a degree of alertness, watchfulness, right? Jesus says, watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation, the temptation that leads to backsliding. Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. It means, it means for example, being watchful and keeping our eye on the first cooling of our love. The first cooling of our love toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The first evidences of an inclination to formality and indifference as the enemies of our souls, right? We're getting to fall. That first chill, we can feel it. You know, it comes and you, you sense it. It's true with the soul. You can, fin you can sense the first chill that sets in onto the soul. We need, to, we need to be alert to it. We need to see it. We need to know it. Recognize it for what it is. Address it. Cut it off. To resist it with ferocity. I've told this. I've given, used this illustration before. But when we were living in Canada, we had, a, we had like a shed type thing with a fence on the side of it and there were like cement pavers inside the fenced cubicle where the, you know, it was like a dog cage. You couldn't get straight in. You had to go in and you had to kind of, it wasn't easy to get into. My wife's looking out the kitchen window at spring and she says, you know, there's, there's a weed growing up in the middle of, of those pavers. You should, you should go pull that. I'm like, yes, dear, I'll do it. I'll get on it. You know, one thing leads to another. You're busy, busy, busy. Weeks pass, months pass, spring passes, summer passes, fall comes. And at the end of the fall, you know, that weed had grown about seven feet tall and was about that thick around at that point. And now, you know, climbing into that cage, what a disaster. You got to yank and yank and pull and heave and whatever to, in order to get the thing out of the ground. And it makes a colossal mess, pulls all the pavers up and all sorts of other problems as a result. Whereas if in the spring, you could have gone in there and in, two, in a split second, grabbed it with two fingers, pulled it up and chucked it out of the fence into the yard. No problem at all. Right? This is, this is the case for, for our soul as, as well. We need to see things and nip them in their bud, to be on top of them with the Lord's help. You know, that begins with heart work, with our heart. Secret prayer becomes, starts to become weary. Secret prayer happens without really any communion with God in it. Then it's neglected. Then we're content to lean on public ordinances. Then they become a formality. Then Christian fellowship begins to be neglected. And then the world begins to take priority. And our conscience is becoming increasingly hardened. And lo and behold, you fall into some catastrophic, horrendous sin. Right? You know the steps. You've heard them in sermons. You've heard them even in this series. We need to be alert. We need to be on guard against the first departures from the Lord. John Bunyan said, beware of sin, then crush it at the door.
Beware of sin, then crush it at the door. Tis once it's in, it may go out no more. Right, same idea, nipping it in the bud, attack it. The fact is that when it comes to your physical body, many of you are incredibly alert and sensitive. Right, you, you, you know, and you're, you know when you, you start feeling not quite right, you can say, wow, man, I know. You know, there's a migraine that's going to be coming on. I can feel it. Or I got that tickle in my throat. Or I'm feeling just a hair off, like something's coming on, and so on and so forth. And at the first stage of a cold or whatever else it is, you recognize it. You run to your pantry and you get out the vitamin C and the zinc and whatever else. And you're, you're trying to subvert it, to cut off the illness, and so on. You'll do that for your body. How much more for your soul? How much more? Can we give that and more to our, our souls? As soon as we discover decay or temptation or deadness, to be immediately fleeing to the Lord at that point and seeking his grace and his help, his deliverance and so on. Right? We need to keep close to him. We need to be watchful. The devil, we are told, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But the fact is that you don't live like it because you don't believe it at times. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but you, you, you don't live like that's the case because you're not believing it to the degree that you should. If a lion were loose in your neighborhood and it's running around in your yard and the neighbor's yards and so on, you're going to be on red alert, right? You're going, to be, you're going to be looking every direction all the time to ensure you're not put in harm's way. You know, you go hiking out west and you see signs that say mountain lions, you know, are frequently sighted here. It changes things, right? You begin watching and looking and smelling or whatever else to stay alert to what's what's going on around you right? we're to keep our hearts we're, we're in the context of spiritual danger we're to be watchful and there's lots of ways god god helps us with with regards to this temporal and spiritual even the temporal stuff the little earthly blessings that the lord gives us day by day can be channels to draw us heart our hearts up heavenward so that we're led to praise him, we're led to thank him, we're led to find our delight in him. Or those earthly things can be an end in themselves and turn into idols and be those lovers that turn us away from the Lord. But they can be springboards to greater nearness with the Lord, tracing all these things into secret communion with the Lord. You know, you can also have the Lord convicting you of sin. And that being an opportunity to turn your heart to the Lord in contrition and repentance. But you think of the ways in which the Lord's given us help, especially in worship, right? The ordinances, the means of grace that he's given to us. And it is in these things that we have to especially be watchful. I've, I've, I've spoken already of, of secret prayer. How many times under the preaching of God's word, here is God, the God of glory, speaking from heaven to you. 
How many times under preaching have you had your thoughts going here and there and you don't even realize, and then all of a sudden you kind of come to yourself and you're like, wow, for the last five, ten minutes I've been thinking about something completely unrelated to anything having to do not just with the sermon, but the Sabbath, or the Bible, or anything else. Or those times when, like, terrible sinful temptations come into your mind under the preaching of God's Word. You think, where did that come from? In this place. Right? We're to be diligent, watching over the means of grace. Andrew Bonar, another free church father in his commentary in Leviticus, said, All declension and decay may, may be said to begin wherever we see these two ordinances despised. The Sabbath and the sanctuary. By that he means public worship. They are the outward fence around the inward love. They are the outward fence around the inward love. We're to watch over the Lord's day, our use of it, our conduct, our thoughts, our speech, our attitudes, our pursuits, and so on. I mean, here is the blessing that is to ravish our hearts with heaven. We are to be jealous over the priority of public worship. I mean, where is the logic in the person who says to themselves, well, I'm going to go to public worship one service a week and be a vibrant, exercised, flourishing Christian. All you have to do is say that out loud to see the foolishness of it, right? The priority of public worship. So that means attendance at public worship, which we've talked about at length at times in the past, but also our conduct in, in private worship. This is the outward fence to inward love. But it's also true of our private worship. It's also true there, secret prayer, praying in our prayers. You know, McShane said he had to pray sometimes 15 minutes before he really began praying, to actually pray in our prayers, not just repeating the well-trodden ground. You know, almost like Anglicans with their prayer books, only ours have been memorized rather than, you know, read out of a book. Our heart needs to be engaged, being discontent with anything else. When I talk to my wife, it's not good enough for me to be present in the same room with my eyes open. It's not good enough. I'm supposed to be thinking about, I can't, she can't be speaking and I'm thinking about something else entirely. That's not fellowship. That's not love, right? There needs to be exchange. There's giving and receiving. There's understanding what's being said, what's behind what's being said, assuring them of our desire to understand and so on and so forth. How much more is this with the Lord? Our communion and intercourse with the Lord, our engagement and the, the soul being exercised for him, uh, before him, and with him. It's true in our reading, not just our eyes glancing over black letters on white pages with little to no impact, not actually taking them in and, and mulling over them and chewing on them and thinking about them and digging for gold in them and applying them and praying over them, hiding them in our hearts and so on. Right? There has to be watchfulness in these, these ordinances. You think of the ordinances of church government as well. We need to be watchful over the, the ordinances of church government. You need to pray for your elders. Why? 
One of their jobs is watchfulness, right? Hebrews 13, 17. They're to watch out for your soul. They're to give an account. They're given responsibility to watch over the souls of, of the Lord's people. Right? The language is this, obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give an account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. Right? We're to pray for, for our elders and to recognize that the Lord uses them. Not, not that we, we tell them what to think about everything that we see and how we see it, but to actually allow the Lord to use them, as he said, with collective wisdom in helping us to know how to think at times regarding things pertaining to our own soul. The Lord would give the help of his Holy Spirit to work through these things. But we also need to be watchful over the good seasons, the happy seasons, the times of prosperity and victory and blessing and so on and so forth. Because how often is it the times of blessing? It can be temporal blessing, new jobs, money, health, whatever, house. Or it can be spiritual times of blessing. Right? It's right on the heels of that that so often backsliding can set in. And I would challenge you this, this, this week to be watchful over this. You know, there's a guarantee that if you sip from Christ's, Christ's cup of grace this week and you meet with the Lord and, and find your soul refreshed and invigorated and all the blessings that come with that, you're going to leave that season with blessing, but you're undoubtedly going to be bombarded with temptations in what follows. Almost to the degree that you were blessed. You could almost say that. And so there's watchfulness. Right, Rutherford has this to say. Sorrow from a slumbing, slumbering soul is a token of some watchfulness of spirit. So he's saying, look, you know, if you're sorrowful about slumbering, you are awake. You, you've got some, some awakeness. But this is soon turned into wantonness as grace in us too often is abused. Therefore, our waking must be watched over else sleep will grow out of watching. And then the, 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 what follows, these next words are words that are well known. And there is as much need to watch over grace as to watch over sin. So true. Full men will soon sleep and sooner than hungry men. So he's saying we have to watch over grace. We need to be alert to times of blessing. And to especially be vigilant to keep what the Lord's given us and not to allow it to be stolen, the seed stolen away from our hearts and so on. Thirdly, lastly, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. So we're to, be hum we're to walk humbly, we're to be watchful, and we're to keep ourselves in, in the love of God. You know, we, we noted last week that in a time of recovery from backsliding, it is the love of God that is paramount to us, right? We see the Lord tenderly recovering us. He's curing us. He's restoring us. We think to ourselves, how can this be? You know, we, we think back when we were first converted, we are depraved, wretched souls, and the Lord delivers us by his grace. He's a holy God. He places his love upon us. 
and and we feel in times of recovery that 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 same sense is is made fresh to us after a time of coldness. How can it be that the Lord takes us back? How is the riches and depths of His grace and you know, we would say this is one time too many. And yet the Lord in grace receives us. And it's that love that melts us, causes our hearts to swell, and so on. But that must stay so. That must stay the case in us going forward. Right? We have to continue in this, this love. Because Basking in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the great preventions to backsliding. I mean, it's, it's kind of what you see in Hosea 14. You know, I will love thee freely. It's what you saw in Jeremiah 2 and 3. And the Lord is saying, I'll do all of this for you. And the response is, in, in light of all that view, in light of all, that, that he, all the love he's showing to us, it's not calculated. It's almost spontaneous when the believer says, well, what? What do I have any more to do with idols? Why, why, would I want, why would I want any other lovers than him? In light of his love, the depths of his love, the glory of his love, and so on. Away with these stupid idols. Right? The love of Christ eradicates love for all of, all of the other competitors in our soul. It's the love of God. You think of a spouse, you know, a spouse who is loved and cherished will find satisfaction with the love of, of their spouse, will not care for another. Right? This is the Christian delighting in the love of Christ, who is our heavenly husband. And it, seeing his love intensif intensifies the reciprocal love in us. That's what the Bible tells us, right? We love him because he first loved us. Our love is, is a response to his love for us. Well, that, you know, that's not just true at the beginning. Why does the believer continue to love him? It's because of the continual sight of his continuing, all uh, engulfing, at times quieting love, invigorating love, his surprising love for us. It's the sight and sense of that love, basking in that love that keeps drawing out our hearts in attachment to him and defends us against sliding backwards. We are actually strong when we're basking in his love. I'm going to give you one more quote from, from John Owen. And I actually brought the book with me. This is a, um, you know, I've been reading Owen for 30 years. And um, this is one of my Favorite quotes in all of what I've read of Owen's corpus. And um, it's done much good for my own soul. Here's what Owen says on the point I'm making. First then, this is a duty wherein it is most evident that Christians are but little exercised. Namely, in holding immediate communion with the Father in love. Unacquainted, unacquaintedness with our mercies, our privileges, is our sin as well as our trouble. We hearken not to the voice of the Spirit which is given unto us, that we may know the things that are freely bestowed on us of God. This makes us go heavily when we might rejoice, and to be weak 
where we might be strong in the Lord. How few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With what anxious and doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questionings are there of his goodwill and kindness? At the best, many think there is no sweetness at all in him towards us, but what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Christ, and so on. Right, he's saying unacquaintedness with that experimental uh, communion with the Father in love is what lies behind the weakness of so much of our, our Christian life. Spiritual vigor, resistance to sin is rooted in our communion with God personally, habitually, intimately in his love. And so we're to warm our hearts with the love of God. It's an electing. We can look all the way back into the deepest recesses of, of the past and we see his electing love. We can, we can stretch our brains as far forward as possible and we can see his consummating love. And we can look at absolutely everything in between. And it is love stamped over all of it. Right? We read it in 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. He's the one who, who brought us to himself. He's the one who bought us. He's the one who preserves us. He's the one who crowns us in his love. Right? His love is unquenchable as a fire. It's stronger than death. This is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. I mean, you, you, you think of, a, you know, husband and wife, they delight in their mutual love. It has various expressions. But they're never content with the theoretical idea of love and marriage. A bookish love. Right? They want to enjoy the actual giving and receiving. They have with one another in love the personal, the sweet, the ravishing love. This is, this is what it is with the believer. The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is to be, that's what the Song of Solomon is all about. right? It's what's, it's what's depicted for us. We must live on the sap of Christ's love to stay near to him, to draw on the resources so that our, our marriage to Christ flourishes with a cultivated love, a pursued love, not no distance, no, no distance is tolerated, but nearness is what is protected. This is life and strength and vibrance that is found rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that without him we can do nothing. We have to be engrafted into him. And so one of the great preservations is to be keeping ourselves in the love of God. Thanks be unto his name that because of his love, the believer is kept. The believer is kept. Psalm 121, we have Jehovah as the keeper of Israel. We're kept by the power of God, Peter says. But we're kept by the power of his love. He upholds us. It is our constant view of the glory of Christ that revives our souls. And it is the constant view of the glory of Christ that causes our souls to flourish and to thrive in constant contemplation of him, in close communion with him.
This is what heals our backslidings. This is what invigorates our hearts. This is what enables us to abound in the things that matter most and please him most. We need to be soaking in the love of Jesus Christ. Well, let me pull some of these things together just briefly for you and make them, apply them in terms of their relevance to the present hour. We're gathered in a prayer meeting this evening on the cusp of another communion season. Some of you come, draw near to this communion season, having grappled with some of the bruisings of spiritual backsliding. And the Lord's been speaking to you, I hope, over these sermons to give you help in preparation for the supper. But on the things we've heard this evening, you can see how this, this, this is immediately applied by us in the days that are to follow. One of the preservations of backsliding is humility. Tomorrow we fast. We give ourselves to the reflection and work of repentance. Friday we have self-examination, examining the marks of grace, as well as the degrees to which grace is found in various virtues and, and categories and so on and so forth. There's plowing there. What a beautiful opportunity to seize where we are coming under the Lord. We're seeing how incredibly dependent we are upon him. We're casting ourselves at his feet. We're humbling ourselves before him. We're owning our sins. We're vindicating all that he says against them. We're bringing them in repentance to him. Uh, we're seeking the, the mercy and blood that is to be found in cleansing from Christ. We are, we are coming to him with confidence in his mercy to receive and to pardon us from all of our sins, to grant us fruit that flow from genuine repentance and godly sorrow for sin. Here's an opportunity to actually be increasing our fortitude against spiritual declension, both in terms of recovery and prevention, through humility. Watchfulness. It's the same thing. We're standing vigilant. I mean, what is a communion season? It's, it's really a call to watchfulness, isn't it? To watch over our own souls. Where have we been? Where are we now? Where are we going? You know, what's happening inside of us? What's the Lord been saying to us? What's the Lord been doing with us? What's the Lord been exposing in us? And all of that. There's watchfulness. How is the word being applied to me and not other people? How does it apply in a whole wide array of different ways in my life? Right? There's watchfulness. We're watching over our souls even in the exercises that are involved in preparation for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You know, it's coupled with prayer and seeking the Lord's help and blessing in his face and drawing nigh and pressing in in order to hold communion with him in all the various capacities that he's given to us. You can take what we've heard this evening about watchfulness and the Lord's saying you can apply it immediately and that it is fortifying you in reference to this business of spiritual declension. And the last one, the love basking and keeping ourselves in the love of God. I mean, you can hardly go anywhere with a more vibrant, colorful, graphic, beautiful, spiritually intense fullness of the disclosures and demonstrations of the love of Christ than we have in all that is connected with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? It's a declaration of his love. His banner is stretched over us, and it's love. 
It's the Lord coming and saying, this is my love. Christ giving himself as a sacrifice on behalf of his people and washing his people, nourishing his people, feeding his people. All of the myriad angles in which we could approach that, right? It is love that is the dominant theme of the supper and what is connected with it in the ministry of the word. And so we have an immediate opportunity to fortify our souls in coming to soak in the love of God in Christ Jesus, shed, in, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, to come and to drink deep of the cup of his love, to pick it up, as it were, like a, a dazzling gem and to turn it and to look at all of the different angles and all of the different facets and all of the different hues and colors and everything else that comes from the study of his love. It's not limited to a communion season, as is evident from everything else I've said this evening. But it is immediately relevant to us. All three of these things are a help to prime the pump in all that lies before us. And I pray that by God's grace, he would use it to recover us from all of the ways and degrees in which backsliding is found among us, but that he would also use it to fortify, to strengthen and prevent us from sliding backward as we move forward by his grace. And I pray that by his spirit, he'll grant us all that and even more more than we could ever ask or imagine. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, thou art love. We confess, O Lord, these three small words, God is love, are so easy for us to roll off our tongues and yet, what do we know of it? Oh, Lord, we know far too little of it. Thou art infinite, eternal and unchangeable in thy love. Oh, Lord, grant to us help then. Give, O oh Lord, that all that has been provided in the scriptures over these sermons, grant that they would be a means under the ministry of the Holy Spirit to revive and to refresh, to invigorate and enliven, to strengthen the hearts of thy people, to fill them with, with joy in believing, and peace and hope and increased faith and greater love for our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.